Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Coming in from the cold, looks back across three centuries of the beautiful game in England and contains references to social attitudes and language from the past that some listeners may find challenging. Once again, cutting back inside. But here's Raheem Sterling on the hat-trick, slots it in beautifully. Goal number five. The Liverpool take it quickly in by Venice and Aldridge going up. Barnes is in there, and Barnes has equalised. A rare-headed goal for John Barnes. And here's Regis, they're caught square, there's a chance. Almost went for Flowers, he didn't pull loudly enough. Henry decided he had to take it. Three defenders and a goalkeeper ahead of him. Oh, what a finish from Andy Cole! Taylor doggedly is trying to stay with Billy Bonds. Bonds a little cross and Clyde Burst the goal! Number three, Clyde Burst! This is the story of black male footballers in the English game. This is our sporting history. This is yours. I'm Jessica Crichton, and this is Coming In From The Cold, a story you can follow on TalkSport and all your favourite podcast platforms. Last time on Coming In From The Cold, we learned all about how the three degrees, Cyril Regis, Laurie Cunningham and Brendan Batson, were at the forefront of a new wave of black talent in the 1970s. In this episode, we're going to learn about a group of players who survived and thrived in the 1980s, often viewed as a dark period of English football, characterised by images of violence and racist fans running riot across crumbling terraces. The decade was a time of immense change for black footballers and a time that proved that they were a force to be reckoned with at home and abroad. Here's Chris Hewton, who played as a fullback for Spurs throughout the decade. If we talk about the era before, there weren't many black players playing. This was an era where there started to become a bigger black influence on the football pitch. The ball for Dixon to chase, and he'll get there. Oh, he's found Canneville! Chelsea have done it! Hodge was off his line, but Canneville was there first. And what an astonishing turnaround. Let's begin with a fullback at a club outside the bright lights of London, who made history on the biggest stage. He'd been on the books at Manchester United as a schoolboy, but it was with a club from the city of his birth that he'd go down in folklore. Vivian Alexander Anderson made his debut for Nottingham Forest in 1974. And once the legendary Brian Clough took over the club the following year, Viv became a regular as Forrest went from mid-table second division side to league champions 
and back-to-back -back European Cup winners by 1980, a run of success that seems unbelievable now. And while making his own way in the game, the young Anderson took inspiration from another pioneer. I just wanted to be a footballer and, and really nothing really uh, could detract me from that, really. So seeing Clyde Best play for West Ham was just a catalyst to say, well, I'd like to be like him. I mean, obviously I wasn't a centre-forward, but I was at school. I played centre-forward at school, but uh, subsequently they put me at the back uh, when I came into the professional game. So yes, Clyde Best was always the leading light on my ideas to be a footballer. Viv told me that he credits his manager, Clough, with helping him to deal with the racism that was then a normalised part of the game for black footballers. It was a sign of the times and it's one of those things you had to get on with. I, I didn't get too many racial abuse when I was playing. You know, obviously you go to certain places and you get the abuse and I could tell you loads of stories about that. But I was one of those that never really bothered me because I had a really good manager early on in my career who uh, pulled me to one side and you say, well, I'll tell you the story. Um, Played my debut on the Saturday, and on the following Saturday, I was going to Carlisle. So the great Mr. Brian Clough was the manager then, and I was sub this game. And after about an hour, he says to me, uh, Anderson, warm up. So I get out at the dugout, warm up, and come back within five minutes. And he says to me, I thought I told you to warm up. I said, I have been warmed up, boss, but they keep on throwing pears, bananas, and apples at me. This is Carlisle, where you don't see many black faces, right up the top end of the country. And uh, so he said to me, his words were, go back out there and get me two pears and a banana. So I go back out, but don't get the two pears and the banana. But he takes me in a room after the game and says to me, in no uncertain terms, listen, if you're going to let people dictate to you like they did today, because you came back straight back in the dugout because you didn't want to get all the abuse you were getting. You're never going to make a footballer. I will not be able to rely on you on a Saturday afternoon. So from that day onwards, I always thought nothing will ever deter from what I wanted to do. That's It's sad in one way that you had to be that resilient. You, you couldn't just play the game you loved. You had to deal with that, but not only deal with it, but suppress it. Do you, do you know what I mean? I agree with what you're saying, but think of it this way. The burning ambitions were me to play football. And if I did, which I, I, I think now in 2020, people should walk off the pitch if they feel racially abused or feel threatened. I think, yes, fair play to you. But if I did that in 1972 or 73 or whenever it was, I'd be working in Woolworths now. We wouldn't have this conversation. Because uh, no, I, I would have been kicked out of the club and uh, that would have been the end of it. And, and they would have said, who's Viv Anderson? But I wanted to be, I had a burning ambition to be a footballer. And whatever it took for me to be a footballer, I would have gone through it. Having endured and achieved so much, Anderson says he's upset that many of the same problems still exist in the game decades later. No, it's quite sad now when you see the likes of Ryan Sterling and what they have to go through. It makes me sad that I had to go through that, but I had to hide the fact that I had to go through that because the alternatives wasn't an alternative to me. That is sad. That is sad. Let's talk but there were the facts of life. Going back in the 70s, that was, that's, that was it. You speak to all the players of that time, that ilk, there wasn't an alternative. And you wanted something badly enough, you go through a lot, don't you?
Tall and athletic, Anderson was determined and aggressive at the back, while his mix of pace and technique made him dangerous on the overlap. In 1978, Forrest became one of the very few and still most recent team to win the league title the season after winning promotion. Then Fiv set a little record of his own, becoming the first black man to win a full England cap when he played against Czechoslovakia in November 1979. Brendan Batson, of Three Degrees fame, shared his thoughts on his fellow fullback. Good defender, really good defender, long legs. You thought you'd beaten him and somehow you'd get those legs out and win the tackle. I used to pride myself on being an attacking fullback and gradually we had more attacking fullbacks. But I think defensively, Viv was very sound as well. I think around that time, there was lots of good fullbacks, but he obviously was one that the, um, the manager felt was worthy of the place. And um, he showed because he's had a terrific career. I think he had a fantastic mentor in Brian Clough, who anything Viv said that was a little bit, um, they called me names and that sort of stuff. He wasn't having any of it, uh, Brian Clough. You hear the stories from Viv, you know, get out there, show what you can do, this, that, and the other. And uh, well worthy of that cap. Somebody's got to be the first, and he was a worthy one to be first, you know, so... A lot of admiration for Viv. As we heard in a previous episode, West Ham's John Charles had played for England under-18s in 1962. Benjamin Adeji, dubbed Boy Pele by the media after his goal-scoring exploits in youth football, had done the same for England schoolboys in 1971, while Laurie Cunningham had starred for the under-21 side from 1977. But more than half a century after Plymouth's Jack Leslie had been effectively deselected from the national side, Due to the colour of his skin, England were finally ready to give a black man a place in the full team. Barnes with that corner, with and Butcher at the near post. Anderson's come up to the back post as well. Well, and it's Viv Anderson who gets the goal. And England go up to eight. Viv Anderson putting it into the net. His first goal for England, in point of fact. I asked Viv about his landmark achievement. I'm very honoured to play for my country. I was born and bred here. And I'm always surprised, even to this day, that I go down to London maybe maybe two or three times a week and people go, Hi, Viv, how are you? I remember your debut. You remember this and I remember that. I'm uh, very honoured and very surprised at the same time. Tell me about when you first heard that you were going to get your first call-up. How did it come about and how did it feel? Um, it was the, the, as I talked earlier, the great Mr. Brian Clough who, who called me in his office and said, uh, I've just got a letter here from the FA. You've been called up for the England squad for the uh, Czechos, upcoming Czechoslovakia game. Very, very surprised, very honoured. Yeah, there, was, there was a lot of talk about who's going to be the first. I remember myself and Laurie Cunningham, who's, uh, we were in Bulgaria for an under-21 game. And there was talk in the papers about who's going to be the first one and who's going to be the first one. And we just talk, we just talked normally about we're talking about what car he was going to buy more than anything else. So we if it was me, it was me, and if it was him, it was going to be him. There was no animosity between ourselves. Who was going to be the first? It was, we were in the room, shared shared the room for three or four days, and we talked about what car we should buy. <laughs> Viv won 30 international caps over the next 10 years. He was part of England's squads at three major tournaments in the 80s, though he never played in a minute of any of them. Domestically, Anderson won every honour in the game to go with those two European Cups, moving to Arsenal from Forest and then becoming Sir Alex Ferguson's first signing at Man United in 1987. He also played for Sheffield Wednesday in a professional career spanning more than 20 years. 
stretching from the old second division in the mid-70s through to the birth of the Premier League. Viv went on to be player-manager of Barnsley, then assistant to Brian Robson at Middlesbrough. And as the first black man to play for the full England side, his place in our nation's football history is rightly assured. But not every fullback could play for England and win European trophies. So what was it like for those black players at the other end of the pyramid, playing in the lower leagues? Well, Cess Pod can tell you. Born on the Caribbean island of St Kitts in 1952, Cess moved to the UK aged nine with his family and they settled in Leeds. While at art college, Pod went on trial at Bradford City and his life took a very different turn. The defender went on to play 574 games for the Bantams between 1970 and 1984, which remains a club record. Cess, now technical director of the St Lucia Football Association, says that he hopes he left a positive legacy for his old team. If they remember me as being honest and being the type of player that they want to represent their city, then it will make it easier for other black players who want to play for that club. I'm hoping that's how they view me. Brendan Batson remembers Pod as a fine player. Quick, very attacking, so I knew what he was like. When I moved to West Brom, we were playing a pre-season game because Ron Atkinson knew the manager up there, um, sorry, the chairman, um, very well. So they arranged a pre-season game. We'd not long signed Peter Barnes. Uh, I think that was one of his first games, uh, pre-season games. He says, who's this lad? Who's this Cess Pod? Because um, he's left winger, Cess right fullback. And I went, oh, he's not much of a player. I said, he's slow. I said, he'll turn him inside out. So he gets the ball, Peter, takes him on, <laughs> says, says, just flipping, zoomed by him, took the ball off him and he's on his way. Half time he said, you're a line, so-and-so, Brenny. You told me you were <laughs> Good player. During his time at Valley Parade, Cess often got forward to set up goals for Joe Cook, a target man from Dominica who played more than 200 games for Bradford. Cess believes his progressive style of play brought something different to the divisions he played in. I don't think it was that prevalent in, in those days, but attacking fullbacks, um, I, I was one of those, you know, so I like to I like to make forward runs and we had a big guy called Joe Cook. He used to play up front, so I used to just get get up the wings and, and knock balls into the box. And then we had Bobby Campbell as well who came after Joe. So that was kind of the game plan. I think most managers play to the strengths, you know, the players' strengths. And that was my strength, getting forward. I was very quick. I like to take players on in, in you know, 1v1 and stuff like that. And I just felt one of the things that, that I didn't get that I, I wish I had was more coaching. But I kind of learned very quickly. And, and I felt I was a very good defender. At one stage during his career, there were whispers of interest from Liverpool. But looking back, Pod says he's glad that he spent 14 years with Bradford. I was safe there. My parents were there. My families were there. And nothing nothing concrete happened. The Liverpool thing came along and went. And nothing happened. The only thing I got was they're interested. That was, no one said, oh, Liverpool wants to sign you or anything like that. Perhaps it might have been different, but it didn't really bother me. You know, all I wanted to do was play football. I was getting paid for doing it. And I was happy at Bradford City because... The fans loved me, you know. When I went at any other places, you can hear shouts like, Ziga Zaga, Bradford's got, you know, you know, come on. 
you know, so why do I want to go somewhere else to hear that every every week? You know, so when when you're a young player, a youngster, and you're in, involved in the game, you don't know that much about, you know, the football life. All you want to do is play. It, you know, they're big decisions. I wasn't ready for that to move away, so perhaps that's why I stayed there for so long, yeah. Cess may have been a favourite with Bantam fans, but the welcome at other grounds was far from warm. Chief sports writer at the Mail on Sunday, Ollie Holt, remembers going to lower league games at the time. I have a very clear memory of watching Cess Pod actually playing for Bradford City at Stockport, at Edgeley Park. And, you know, I feel ashamed to say it now, but the racial abuse that he got was shocking. And I feel even more ashamed to say, I think, that actually at the time I wasn't as shocked by it. It was more commonplace. And sometimes when I think of the, the issues that we have now, God, it was worse then. It didn't even feel as if it was frowned upon, you know. I mean, he was monkey noises and it was bananas and the whole lot. And say, when I look back on it, I feel ashamed of the way that he was treated. And that's not a Stockport problem. That was just the way that I think it was for black footballers then. Like many of his peers, Cess played through pain to leave his own mark on the game. So much so that in 1981, he became the first black footballer in England to be rewarded with a testimonial match. And he decided to put together a Black Stars 11 for the game. And what a team it was. Alex Williams, he was the goalkeeper at Manchester City at the time. And then we had George Berry, as you know. George was at Wolves. So Bob Hazel was there. And obviously Brendan. Brendan was at uh, West Brom at the time. Terry Connor, Garth Crooks, Vince Hilaire. Then there was Justin Fashionen. He was at Forest at the time. Then Tony Cunningham from Lincoln City. Then Luther Blissett. He was um, at Watford. A young guy called Trevor Quo. And then there was Ricky Hill. Ricky was at Luton. Uh, and then the Chamberlain brothers. I wanted to, to make a statement, you know, and I wanted to show these young black kids. There's other black players. So what I did was I just put it out there and the guys were brilliant. Wolves' George Berry says he was happy to play his part in supporting the veteran Bradford defender. He was one of the, the soldiers and he was a great lad and proud. With echoes of the Blacks versus Whites match at West Brom in 1979, Cess believes that it was a positive thing to bring the players of his era together. It was great, you know, but it achieved the objective. The, ob- the objective was to get the guys together and for people to see this is what's going on. This is where football's come in terms of black players. And the game itself, you know, the Bradford City crowd were always, you know, good to me, you know, and and they loved it. They thought it was a great idea. I just feel it was something on my heart that I had to do. If I hadn't done it, I I just wouldn't have felt right. After leaving Bradford, Pod spent a couple of years at Halifax before retiring in 1986. Or at least, that was the plan. But then he got a call from a young coach who had just taken charge of non-league Scarborough, Neil Warnock. He needed an experienced head to help guide his team into the Football League and reached out to Cess. And the negotiations at Warnock's house took a strange turn. He's a shropodist, so he sits me on his couch and he says, take your shoes off. So I put my shoes and socks off. He gets hold of my foot and he starts chiseling my toenails out. So he goes, you've got ingrowing toenails, haven't you? So I'm watching him doing all this. I'm not said a word. I'm thinking, what is he doing? I said, how do you know that? He said, I know about you. I know everything there is to know about you. He's talking to me and we talk in terms. He said, look, come and play for me. 
only have to put, give me another year. He said, but I know after that year, you'll want another one. I said, what we need now is leadership. And he said, for the time being, I want you to be the coach as well. About the end of the, the, the discussion, he said to me, right, stand up. So I stood up and said, can you feel your ingrowing toenails? I said, no. He said, well, sign for me and you'll never have ingrowing toenails again. <laughs> that was it. So I just started laughing because it was just a, such a ridiculous conversation. I said to him, okay. And we got promotion that year. After finally really calling it quits, Pod went on to work with Leeds Football in the Community Programme before becoming a coach back in St Lucia. And his shining example lives on. I felt privileged to be able to get into the game and very few black players were able to do that. That in itself was a bit of a legacy, even though I didn't play at the top level. I felt that to be able to show people through my testimonial and through the things that I did when I was at Beach United working in the community, I wanted that to be positive. Coming up next, when the colour of your skin means more to your own fans than the colour of your shirt, this is Coming In From The Cold. Welcome back to Coming In From The Cold, a history of black footballers in the English men's game. The 1980s were a dark time for many. England's inner cities were set alight, with violent uprisings against heavy-handed policing, kicking off in London, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds and Bristol. Economic strife tore many communities apart, leading to mass unemployment and bruising labour disputes. The far right's rise in and around football grounds across the country became entwined with a growing tide of hooliganism, leaving black footballers on the pitch and black fans in the stands horribly exposed. So what was it really like for black players at this time? And how do you cope when the colour of your skin means more to your own fans than the colour of your shirt? I didn't expect to receive what I received, and not just at the club or from the fans. I just thought, now, this is a higher professionalism. This is not to be expected, but, yeah, I was really shocked. Paul Canneville was the first black man to play for Chelsea. When we think of the Blues now, we think of Tammy Abraham, Rhys James and N'Golo Kanti, and club legends like Didier Drogba, Ashley Cole and Marcel Desailly. But back in the day, Chelsea were known for a fan base that included a hard core of racist, far-right fans. And Paul a winger of Caribbean descent born and bred in West London, found he was their target as he got ready to make his debut from the bench against Crystal Palace in 1982. That's when, yeah, the excitement, the adrenaline was all bursting, don't get me wrong, until I went down the line and started to warm up and I started to hear this abuse. And I didn't even realise, I didn't even look, I just thought it was Crystal Palace fans. That, well, they're a bit hard. What's going on there? But... Ignoring it, ignoring it to so much until I couldn't ignore it no more and I was getting really angry that I turned around and was shocked. And I was shocked to see it was my own fans that was racially abusing me and I was, wow. It, well, that adrenaline really just dropped totally. I didn't want to play. I didn't want to go on the pitch, but I had to. The substitute was made. And the worst thing was they took off their favourite player, which was Clive Walker for me. And I was like, oh, that's hell of an abuse I'm going to take for it because that's what they were favourite player. Um, I stood more or less down the sideline and waited for the referee to blow. And until he did, I ran straight into the changing room. And you got to say, I've said this so many times, it was the quietest changing room ever. And usually come after gaming, through the game, we have banter. But this was quiet because the players heard they heard what the abuse I see, what could they say to me? 
Um, there's only my manager at that time who really was supportive. I'm not saying the team mates weren't, but he that came over to me said, boy, I don't know how you're feeling right now, but the abuse you're taking right there, it is up to you what to do. These are the same ignorant people that are paying your wages. What do you want to do? And he was right. It was quite easy for me to make a decision, don't get me wrong. I had family members calling me, man, hurt, telling me, what do you want to play for a racist side like that? And I was explaining, it's not the club. It's those ignorant fans. They'll not realise anything better. Um, and that's who I've got to fight against. Pat Nevin played on the wing for Chelsea at the same time as Canaville. We won one nil. I scored the winning goal. But Paul was being booed by a vast, you know, a really big section of our inverted commas supporters uh, down at Selhurst Park. And it, there was no way that I could talk about football or my celebration or me getting the winning goal or anything got to do with that. When that was going on, it was so obvious and it was so sickening. Now, if I couldn't stand Paul Cannaville, I'd still have done it. But he also happened to be a mate of mine, so you know, it was, I absolutely wasn't going to let it lie. And maybe that was one of the times where I thought, no, I'm going to try and have the biggest effect here. I'm really going to try and use the media that's outside here and get this message across straight back to those people that were shouting that and say it's not acceptable and, you know, we don't want it. And also was another big thing that was really important, A, to give a little bit of support to Paul, yes, but on top of that, I knew a lot of Chelsea fans and I knew a lot of them weren't like that. In fact, it was a minority that were like that, and the, but the majority was too silent for my liking. And I wanted to give an opportunity for that, that majority to speak up and sing up and shout up and make their voices heard. But they were being drowned out by that horrid minority. Rodney Hines is sports editor at The Voice newspaper. He explains that white players like Nevin being an ally remain just as important now as it was then. So if you take the Black Lives Matter movement, it's not too dissimilar to where you talk about Pat Nevin assisting and, and being on the side of Paul Cannibal. We need white players. We need white people to be part of this growth and this acceptance. I know Paul very well. I've met Pat, courtesy of Paul. And you can see that Pat Nevin is, is such a genuine guy. If he had to do it today, he would do it today. Yes, black footballers need white footballers to, to be supportive and understand it. Um, if there is going to be progress, without doubt, black players need to be supported by, by white players at every level. Canners, as he was known, would not be deterred and continue to build his career at Stamford Bridge. Love and hate can never be friends. Oh no, oh no. Here I come with love and not hatred. But despite helping the club win promotion to the top flight in 1984, the abuse from Chelsea fans continued. I go back and realise that I should have said more. I should have made more. And I didn't, to be honest. Um, I didn't state how I felt. I, I just kept a button lip and just played on. Everybody wouldn't even ask me how was I feeling. The club didn't even ask me. They know that what they did was wrong. Nobody asked, how are you feeling? How are you going through this, Paul? Nobody. And I didn't want to make any kind of stress or any trouble. I'm thinking if I make any noise, that I'd be trying out. So that's the reason why I just I took it and got on with it. 
but I should have made noise. And don't get me wrong, where we have organisations like the Kick It Out and the Show the Red Card, we didn't have that at all. So a young black lad didn't know who he could talk to or to, you know what I mean, open up and say, look, this is hard. Not knowing where to turn, Paul admitted to me that his experiences took a huge toll on his well-being. I don't believe I'd turn to anybody. Um, not even mother knew what was going on. Um, sister, she was just proud of me being a professional footballer. I had nobody. I didn't really talk to anybody. It was going at home thinking what I could do to improve. And it wasn't like that because it was a case of every game I thought I had to play as twice as better than my teammates to get accepted, to get that cheer. And that's how it was for me every time. So, um, yeah, there was nobody. As I said, I didn't whinge, I didn't complain to anybody. I just get on and just go on with it. What does that do to you? What does that do to your mental health? What does that do to your psyche? Your mental well-being is... It's, it can lead to that depression. It can lead to that pressure. It can lead to, how do I feel? Do I feel weak by complaining? Um, I was taking it all and it was loaded right on my shoulders. Coming in, training, giving everybody a, a full smile. And that's what it was. Paul Elliott ended his career at Stamford Bridge with spells at clubs including Aston Villa, Italian side Pisa and Celtic before that. He admits to having to draw on all of his inner strength to get through some games. When I look back and think, you know, all you really wanted was that equal opportunity to work in a, in a racism-free environment. It's just that human rights that we all talk about. But um, to have been able to try and perform to the best of your ability, but also knowing that when you, you know, when you had the ball, when you were competing, you know, there was all forms of monkey chanting, booing, banana throwing, you know, it's, it's, when I look back and think, I think, my goodness, how, how did I ever put up with that? But it was just the norm, and, and that was the only way uh, I had to really dig deep into my reserves and my survival instincts. Paul Canneville played more than 100 games for Chelsea over five seasons. But he was driven out of the club after physically retaliating to racist abuse, this time from one of his own teammates. He was sold to second division Reading, where injury forced him into early retirement in his mid-twenties. Despite how things went, Paul still supports Chelsea. Looking now at a very different club, Canneville is proud to be the first of a long line of black talent to grace Chelsea. It's nice to be honoured, um, to say, I've been told, Canners, you set this trend. It's you that opened the doors for these black players to come in to follow after you. And it's so nice, don't get me wrong. I, so it's, when I was called back, obviously, um, 2004, it was like I saw seven black players and I, Marcella, Lute, I was like, wow, are they allowed to play them? And that's what I was thinking. I was questioning, are they sure they want to play playing these, these black guys? And the uh, fan next to me tapped my shoulder and said, Canners, man, that's because of you. You started this, mate. Well done. And I was like, wow, kind of proud. Yes. But, you know what I mean, for the individual to what I had to go through, yes, it hurt. Um, but hopefully it's easy, a lot easier for the players that are coming through now, especially the young players. Lord Herman Oosley founded Kick It Out. He says that players like Canners began to force a shift in the mentality of racist fans. What was winning over these people now was the fact that black players were good. And although they were booing them, even the ones on their own side, they recognised you can't ignore talent now. 
You can't ignore those guys out there because they are good. And that was a very important moment for me in knowing that the fact that you have black players increasingly getting out there and performing and performing well, they were setting a standard and they were influencing change in a very small way, even if they weren't directly challenging the racism and the abuse. They were showing, in spite of that, they were winning. Time and again, trailblazing black stars were leading the way in English football, changing views, narratives and mindsets. But this often came at a great personal cost. And one of the greatest examples of this was shown by an explosive striker who became the world's first £1 million black footballer in the 1980s. Justin Fashnu was born in Hackney in East London to Nigerian parents. But he and his brother John were brought up by a white foster family in rural Norfolk. Justin signed on as a professional with Norwich City and quickly made the Canaries' first team, terrorising defences with his all-action forward play. Here's John Fashnu, who would go on to star for Wimbledon, Aston Villa and England. Justin was a very nice person on the pitch. Many times I've seen him being elbowed or punched or kicked and he would never retaliate. Never, never once. I don't think that Justin was ever sent off in his whole life. His, shall we say, his goal was very different to my goal. And so I tried to take this the, the good things out of what I was seeing from my late brother, Justin. And remember, you know, he was the, the, the first one million pound black player. That was a real milestone. That was a real step in life. After scoring the goal of the season in 1980, a stunning long-range volley against Liverpool, Justin got his million-pound move to recent European Cup winners Nottingham Forest the following year. But the transfer didn't work out, and despite winning England under-21 caps, Fashnu's career never really recovered, although he continued to play at a high level for many years, appearing for clubs including Southampton, Man City and West Ham. In 1990, Justin came out as gay, and he remains the only male professional footballer in England to do so while still playing. He tragically took his own life in 1998 after being accused of sexual assault. He was just 37. At the time Justin came out, John publicly disowned his brother, something he now says he regrets and is paying penance for. Every day I think about uh, the mistakes I made with Justin. And I think that uh, of ways of correcting them. And, you know, subsequently, I've had two or three gay footballers who have come to me and spoken to me for advice. And I've handled the situation completely different to the situation I handled with Justin. I think we've all learned a lesson. Sadly, somebody lost his life in the, the process. But, uh, you know, we've, we've learned. And if it means that um, I can talk to people and uh, get closer to a lot of people who I should have done before, I think we've moved on. You know, the scars are still there, but the wounds have healed. In death, Justin has been recognised as an inspiration for LGBTQ people. And in 2020, he was inducted into the National Football Museum Hall of Fame. 
John says that he believes Justin's life and career as a trailblazer should be celebrated. I like to think that uh, Justin will be remembered as a brave, uh, well, well, a great footballer without any shadow of doubt, but as a as a brave man, as somebody who wanted to change the system, somebody who was brave enough to change the perception for gay people. Justin Fashnu was the first million pound black footballer, but more than that, it was his courage and strength as a man that makes him such an important figure in our national game. John Fashnu went on to have an impactful career of his own, following his brother's path from Norwich City to the top flight via a stop at Millwall, notorious at the time for having a section of violent, racist fans. But it was as captain of Wimbledon that he is best known, as the alpha among alphas of the self-styled crazy gang. John says he recognised the added significance of being a black player in a position of authority. To be a captain, you know, even today I wear my armband because it was an honour to be a captain and it still is. And it puts 10 times the, uh, the responsibility on your head. Sometimes you look into the crowd and you see one black face and that one black face is looking at you and smiling and cheering. And you look at that person and you just give a smile to the kid or whatever. And it, it, it inspires you and you know you're inspiring them, which was also very nice. A tough physical striker in a very different top flight to what we see in today's Premier League, he earned the nickname Fash the Bash for his combative approach. His style may have been crude, but it was effective. So much so that he earned two England caps in the late 80s under Sir Bobby Robson. One thing stands out in John's memory how he and other black players were targeted by England supporters. I remember when we went out for the national anthem, I remember that the, a, a group of fans were calling us black this, that, and this. And I looked at Paul Parker and he looked at me and I said, what the flipping hell are we doing here? We haven't even started the match and our own home supporters are booing us. Fashion was proud to have played for the Three Lions, though he admits his choice of who to represent in international football brought criticism from his nearest and dearest. Oh my goodness me, yes. Oh, not not just my family, the whole country. <laughs> the whole country. You know, I think that in Nigeria, I've got family of about 100 million people. So there's nowhere I'm going to go without them saying, oh, John Fashionu, you turned down your country. You never played for Nigeria. With an increasingly diverse pool of talent coming through in English football, John hopes that players will select the nation they choose to represent for the right reasons. We have at least four or five black African-descended players in every team in the English Premier League now. It's, it's not some, it's not, it's normal. So I tell them that you go to the place where you feel that you're going to be looked after. I don't mean financially. The choice alone is now theirs. There's no benefits more playing for England. There's no benefits more playing for Nigeria. You do what your heart tells you to do. John Fashnu had a tough time with England, and he wasn't the first black player to be given a crack at the national team, but not the time to fully establish themselves. But one player from the 1980s would change that narrative. A man who was born in Jamaica, played like a Brazilian, and took things to another level on Merseyside. Stay tuned. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. 
Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Coming In From The Cold. Imagine lining up for your first start for England at a packed Wembley Stadium. The anthem, the lights, the adrenaline. And you go and score a hat-trick. Well, that fantasy was Lufa Blissett's reality. Woodcock is onside this time. The angle widening by the second as the ball ran away from him, but Blissett puts it in. Robson, Woodcock sensing possibilities again. Blissett's in the middle. It's the hat-trick. Born in Jamaica but raised in North London, Blissett was the first black man to score for England, and that memory from 1982 is one that he cherishes. It's an incredible night, incredible night to score, score the three goals that I did and probably should have given me the one the first one, which was deflected into the home bank their own goal. It would have been an amazing night. And I was actually, again, which is where colour thing doesn't really come into my mind, I was never really aware. It wasn't actually until a good number of years, probably, that it dawned on me when somebody said to me, you realise you're the first black footballer to score for England in a full international. Blissett is a Watford legend who set records for both the most goals and most appearances for the club across three spells at Vicarage Road. He might never have scored for England again, but Luther did something that will never be scrubbed from history. And he remembers his feelings on the night like it was yesterday. It literally was just elated because, you know, I'd done what I wanted to do. I'd gone out there and I'd scored a goal and then got a couple more, so... That, for me, is what it's all about. Other black players like Ricky Hill, Mark Chamberlain, Danny Thomas, Brian Steen and Danny Wallace were getting call-ups, but none were able to cement themselves as starters for the national team. Here's sports journalist Paul Hayward. It's remarkable to think that it was 1978 before Liv Anderson became the first black footballer to play for England. And indeed, even more startlingly, John Barnes was the first black player to play for England in a tournament. The... 1986 World Cup. Now, that's a long time after uh, there was uh, mass immigration after the Second World War to the United Kingdom. So it took an awful long time for black footballers to be given those opportunities. Well, sometimes somebody comes along who forces those opportunities to be given. And John Charles Brian Barnes was that man. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be fair? There had been black stars in English football before him, 
but Barnes was truly the first black superstar. Well, the clock's saying easy. It may be now. It wasn't for a long time. He's got Beardsley going to his left, but still Barnes. That's a fabulous individual goal. His quality was outrageous. And if you're too young to have seen Barnes in his heyday, then you missed out on a player that was a true genius and one that divided opinion like maybe no other. Here's Emil Heskey and why the Anfield legend was his idol. Playing on the wing for Liverpool, cutting in, banging it in the, with his right foot against uh, Everton. Little goals like that and, you know, he, he was just phenomenal. Sol Campbell highlights some of the complexities of Barnes' career. John Barnes was amazing for Liverpool and, and how much kind of, you know, stress he got from England. You know, he scored an amazing goal away in Brazil. One of the best goals scored uh, by the England player. It was never enough for some of the England fans. You know, he was a, he was a, a master, incredible. What we would do with someone like him now? You know, that type of skill and prowess and got eye for goal and under pressure can get a cross in. That skill is just tremendous. Maybe they just didn't know how to kind of understand where he's coming from. And obviously, got the best. Liverpool got the best out of him for sure. But England, for some reason, didn't get the best out of him. So. You know, that was, that was a difficult thing to kind of take because he was a, you know, what a remarkable player. Ricky Hill, the fourth black man to win a full England cap, describes Barnes as the complete attacking player. John had the, a left foot that could peel an orange just with the, the culture of it and, and the manner that he could use all surfaces of it. But likewise, he wasn't frightened to use his right foot too. But where he was excellent was his, his strength, his speed and obviously his skill and his, his soccer intelligence. Barnes would be named Player of the Year twice, win two league titles, two FA Cups and 79 England caps during a spectacular career with Watford and Liverpool before he closed out his playing days at Newcastle and Charlton. Yet despite his glorious club career in the 80s and 90s, John's up and down displays for the national team made him a complex figure in the history of the national game. John was born in Jamaica and came to England in his teens, which for some led to questions about his commitment to the Three Lions. It's a claim that Barnes is quick to dismiss. When I got the call up for England, it made me feel very good because it proved that you were one of the best players in England. I then became and identified with my teammates who happened to be English because I could have played for Scotland, Northern Ireland or Wales. But England asked me first. Now, if England didn't ask me and I played for Northern Ireland, Scotland or Wales, I would have been as committed to those teams. So I would be more committed to England than I would would be if I played for, for somebody else. So this whole idea of, yes, It's a proud feeling to play for your country. It's a proud feeling to play at the highest level for the team who asked you to play for them. So this whole idea of English and be proud to be English as opposed to Scottish or Irish, I never never felt that. I would give 100% for whoever I played for. Barnes' background wasn't that of a typical footballer. As you might have heard in episode two, his mother was a newsreader in the Caribbean, while the Barnes family moved to England in the mid-1970s when John's father, a former Jamaica international footballer turned army colonel, was posted to the Jamaican High Commission in London. And it was while he passed the time ahead of embarking on a football scholarship in the US that John was scouted by Watford while playing for non-league Sudbury Court. Aged only 17, he joined a club that was powering towards the top flight under the guidance of future England boss Graham Taylor. From the beginning, Barnes was a sensation. People forget. I played for Watford for six years. We finished second to Liverpool. The goal against Brazil was I played at Watford. I've played more for what for England when I was a Watford player than a Liverpool player. People associate me with Liverpool and think that I went, when I went to Liverpool is when that's when I got 
probably to the public eye generally. But don't forget, I played more for England as a Watford player. Luther Blissett remembers the immediate impression that the teenage winger made when he arrived at Vicarage Road. I'd never seen anybody with that talent close up. You've seen George Best and you know, you went to the game and you saw him. To actually see John in training and then replicate and even better what he did when he walked into the pitch at the age of 17, you know, against some um, seasoned professionals and he made them look so second rate. It was, it was it's something that you'd never seen or believed could be possible to be at that age to be that good, that talented. John was a very, very special player and what he did at Watford was incredible. And more to the point, he went on to Liverpool and, you know, it went up another two, three levels and he, he was an exceptional player as a person as well. When he arrived on the first day, we'd heard so much about John Barnes, this kid from um, Sudbury Court that was coming, you know, this one kid. And as usual, you think, right, we'll see, yeah, we'll see if that's true. We'll see his stories all the time and you think, right, we'll see if he can do all the training that we do and he was as good and better than most of us at everything that he did from from day one, he was just very special. There's nothing he couldn't do. Tennis, swimming, badminton, squash, whatever, running, long distance, short distance, whatever. He was just uh, an outstanding talent. With his unconventional upbringing, Barnes says that the racism dished out to black players at the time didn't affect his mentality as he made his way in the professional game. We're brought up in an environment at that particular time whereby if you got abuse, get on with it. That's why so many black players who were in my early age, early days at 17 and 18 were lost to the game of football because if they got abused, they would fight and they would punch people and they'd complain. And if you do that, you would make it because they'll say to you, come on, son, just put up with it. You know what I mean? You've got to be stiff off a lip and get on with it. So if you're going to get racist abuse, you've got to be tough enough to come through it. It was not this arm around the shoulder, we protect you like they're doing now. That wasn't the case then, but that was the case of society because you could get racially abused going into a shop. This was the unconscious bias that everyone had. With Barnes and Blissett running things, Watford won promotion to the top flight finished second in the league and reached the FA Cup final in the mid-80s. And with the run they went on, both of Watford's black stars are in the England reckoning. The narrative was black players, they're fast, they don't think too much, so therefore don't put them in positions of responsibility. Goalkeepers, central defenders, defensive midfield players. This was the narrative, the 60s and the 70s. But you must have had black goalkeepers, black defensive midfield players, black defenders who never made it because of the stereotypical perception of them. Obviously, things changed, albeit Viv Anderson was the first black player. He had to be a defender. So things were changing as a matter of necessity, not as a matter of any kind of racial equality, because if you wanted to win, you want to get the best. Aged just 19, Barnes made his international debut. And a year later, in 1984, he scored possibly the greatest ever individual goal by an England player dribbling through the Brazil team to score in a 2-0 friendly win in Rio. It's very quickly when things don't go well, but it's still 0-0, coming towards half-time. Hastley for England. That's a good ball there for Barnes. Now, can he take Leandro? John Barnes now. Might go all the way for England. Barnes! John Byrne scores one of the greatest goals in this country's history in the most emotive stadium in the world, Maracanã in 84. And he's on the plane flying to Chile for the, for the next leg of England's mini tour. 
and you know two of the NF supporters walk up the plane and say, you know, you should be wearing that shirt because you're black. And the game was only 1-0 because only Mark Hatley's goal counted. This wasn't the first time that some England fans would put an asterisk next to his achievements. I was a Jamaican-born John Barnes when I didn't play well. When I played well, I was English player. Writer and academic Professor Paul Gilroy adds some context. Racism in this country and in many other countries too means that you can love the things that black people do for you without actually liking the black people, you know, who do it that you can have what psychologists would think of as a, maybe a more ambivalent relationship. And that means that when you're winning, it's great. And when you're losing, it's really not so good. Despite arguably being the most talented England player of his generation and part of squads at three major tournaments, Barnes never enjoyed the adulation of the fans as he did with his club sides. And this strained relationship would reach its breaking point when the Wembley crowd booed him in a 1994 match against San Marino. The English players who were revered were the goal scorers, Gary Lineker. He wasn't particularly skillful, but he could score goals. Brian Robson, tough tackler. The defenders who were, you know, Terry Butcher when he got his cut. That was what it was about. It's a cultural thing, more than a race thing. Myself, the technical players were always booed because unless you're getting stuck in, just being skillful wasn't good enough. So, which is a complete different now. So therefore, it was, it was not as simple as to say I got booed because I was black, because the skillful players were never appreciated for England. However... When I got booed, I was playing against San Marino, and what had happened was Jimmy Greaves wrote a, an article that I wasn't committed to England because I was born in Jamaica. Not just because I was born in Jamaica, but because what we used to have, we used to have some banter in football, right? So what happened was, I'm with the England team, and of course you're doing interviews, and the English players are on television, and of course, meet a World Cup or a European Championship, which was in the summer, cricket was also played in the summer. And of course, the West Indies would come to England in the summer, or England would go to the West Indies. And I'd be having this with Brian Robson or some of the England players. I'm supporting the West Indies in cricket, particularly in the 80s when they were in the better team. So we'd have this banter that, oh yeah, I want the West Indies to be thinking of cricket. So therefore, this thing was in a newspaper that I'm not committed to England because I even support the West Indies in cricket against England. So the whole idea of, you know, me not being English was in the newspaper of me not being, you know, the quintessential English British bulldog kind of a guy who supports the West Indies. So that is why they actually booed me when things weren't going well, because the whole narrative that I'm not committed to play for England because I was born in England came to the fore. Here's Darren Lewis, assistant editor of the Daily Mirror. John Barnes, goodness me, what a flamboyant player who never really got the credit he deserved for England, should have had over a hundred caps didn't get anywhere near that and you you look at what he did with he was recognized obviously at club level performed consistently quite clearly for Watford and then for Liverpool but again you see the climate that these guys operated in and you realize the kind of character that they must have had whenever I hear players being described as having character now you will never have the kind of character that you needed to be able to perform week in week out at that time while Barnes may have been something of an enigma for England, the only black players to win more caps than him are Ashley Cole and Rio Ferdinand, and there was no question of his prominence in domestic competition. After 85 goals and just shy of 300 games, he moved to Liverpool in 1987. Then the long-term undisputed top dogs of English football. Here's Brendan Batson. John Barnes going to Liverpool. I don't have actually said it to him, but I remember thinking, please, John, don't fail because there were huge problems down at Liverpool in terms of acceptance of black players and John Barnes outstanding as we all know so yes those who came after us kept up the the fight for almost equality to be accepted just as players 
As Lord Herman Oosley says, Barnes was only the second black player to turn out for the club. When John went to Liverpool, there was also the background of a young black player from Toxteth, one of the local guys, Howard Gale. Howard was one of those players. He was going to be the next big thing. When I saw this guy, he was he was as good as Barnes, but he wouldn't put up with any of the racist nonsense and they shipped him out. Local lad Gale later wrote about being regularly abused by fellow players as he tried to build a career at Anfield in the late 70s and early 80s. A group of Reds fans even wrote to Barnes, urging him not to move to Anfield. But Barnes' skin was thick, and it needed to be, as his success on Merseyside drove Liverpool's rivals to unprecedented levels of abuse. Here's Evertonian Emmy Anura, author of Pitch Black, the story of black British footballers. He was absolutely massive, John Barnes. I mean, I'm an Evertonian, so obviously I was. Uh, there was a period of time where I really hated him because he did really well against us and everything else. For me, as an Evertonian, it was it was quite a disparating time actually because whereas before there was there was it was quite common racist chant and racist abuse to black players at Everton's ground was kind of quite common. It actually went up several notches when John Barnes signed for our biggest rivals. And so when he came, the level of racism was just, just went up three or four or five fold. One of the most iconic photos in English football history shows Barnes nonchalantly backheeling a banana off the pitch during a Merseyside derby. While it's a perfect freeze frame of his skill juxtaposed against the ugliness of the time, Barnes himself says he doesn't remember the specific occasion as it was the norm for him. I don't even remember doing it. When I look at that picture, if you say to me now, do you remember kicking that banana off the field? Not at all. Of course, the picture was very poignant. But if you say to me now, do you remember doing it? Forget about the picture, because I remember the picture because I've got it and I've seen it. But if you said, do you remember that incident? I'll say, no, because don't forget, they was playing against Everton in 1988. Everton-Liverpool, high-profile match, the whole of the world. And I'm looking at that and saying, you know, that's an iconic picture, isn't it? Terrible. I've been playing football since 1981 professionally. Bananas were coming on the field 1981-82 when I played for Watford until 87. was an everyday occurrence. Now, the media made a big deal about it because of the Liverpool-Everton, who were the best teams in England. But that had been happening to black players and no one batted an eyelid. And, you know, black players would not have then picked up a banana to say, look at this coming on the field. It was one of those things that, that happened all the time. So it's a poignant picture, but it, it's... You could have taken hundreds of those pictures any time before where people wouldn't even remember doing it. So it's a great picture, but um, I have no memory of it at all. Former QPR Newcastle and Spurs star Les Ferdinand witnessed the abuse that Barnes faced wherever he went. I remember sort of like a game that John Barnes played in up at Newcastle and at half-time they cleared three and a half black bin liners of bananas at half-time and nothing was said, you know, just got on with the game. You know, so we're talking about now and the problems that are facing now. It's nothing compared because football has always been this uh, this venue that people could go and vent their frustrations uh, and be racist and get away with it. And, you know, some of those attitudes still haven't changed today. Barnes is philosophical about what he had to put up with during his career. If I played for their club, they would love me. Anybody, even Liverpool. Cause in fact, when I played against Liverpool, some Liverpool fans actually abused me. But when I played for them, they loved me. So how real is that? So I never felt as if I was either being disenfranchised. And it, and, and it isn't real because the, the real racism is what everyday people go through every day of their lives. When they come out of their houses, then they can't get a job, can't get any education. The hate was real, but so was the love. Liverpool fans adored him. As his game evolved from flying winger to roaming number 10, then midfield playmaker. And black football fans, whether on Merseyside or around the country, 
had an inspirational hero at the very top of the game that they could idolise. Here's Emi Anura. One of the things that John did quite successfully was actually visit the Liverpool Eights area and the, and, and the black community areas. And he did things like, you know, prize-given nights at local football clubs. So a kid's football club will have a prize-given night and John will give the prizes out. But he opened one of the barber shops in hand. So there's a picture of John having his hair cut by that barber. Yeah, and that was up in the shop. And I think just as a role model, it had a massive effect and kind of cemented football within the black community as being the dominant kind of game across the city. Next time on Coming In From The Cold, we'll look at how English football was rebooted in the 1990s and how a striker from South London bought the streets to the top flight. Ian Wright was the leader of a new generation of black players who would change the face of English football by any means necessary. Coming In From The Cold is an unedited production for the wireless group and supported by the Audio Content Fund. Hear the rest of this series on TalkSport or subscribe to Coming In From The Cold on your favourite podcast app and smart speaker. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.